just start talking about examples instead of abstract acceptance criteria and things immediately get better on a team. It, concrete examples reveal misalignment and misunderstanding and build alignment and shared purpose like nothing else does. Um, so I, I encourage a lot of the teams I work with, if, if you're not ready to take on uh, Cucumber and test automation and all the rest of it, just experiment with talking about examples. So product owners tell stories in terms of examples. Uh, programmers, testers ask about examples. Uh, report bugs you find in terms of concrete examples. Uh, get concrete faster and you begin to get a taste of what BDD can look like. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast, recording here in the caverns deep beneath the bowels of Cucumber Headquarters in Glasgow. I'm here with my colleague, Seb Rose. Hello. And we are very lucky this week to bring you um, two of the most knowledgeable people in the world, really, about BDD, um, people I've been working with for a very long time and learned a lot from, Richard Lawrence and Paul Rayner. Hello, hello. Hello. Um, yeah, so uh, Richard and Paul, we invited Richard and Paul on uh, particularly this week because um, they finally finished a book about <laughs> PDD with cucumber, which um, has been, yeah, has, has been a, a, a real labor of love, I think, um, for these two. It started a really long time ago, and I reviewed it um, as part of the, the writing process a few months ago, and I, um, I thought it was excellent. Um, maybe the book about BDD even. Um, I thought it was really, really good. Oh, that's very kind. Uh, re- really excited to get, get these two on and talk to them in, in some more detail. But maybe before we get into that, um, you two could each just, if you could just say a couple of words about yourselves, just to, just to let the folks at the end of the line know who you are. Should we start with, with Richard? Yeah, uh, thanks, Matt. Um, so I am an agile trainer and coach. I have a company with um, several other people called Agile for All and spend a lot of time helping people succeed with this agile stuff kind of broadly. Uh, and years ago, as I was working with my own teams and with teams I was coaching, I, I discovered this BDD thing and found that it was one of the best collaboration practices for building good software that I'd ever encountered. And so that's been a large part of my career and including eight years of working on this book and rewriting it a few different times. Okay. And I'm Paul Rayner and I do consulting and coaching mostly around software design, particularly domain driven design. And that's kind of how I got into behavior driven development was sort of backing in through DDD through the intersection of um, specification by example and and having a common shared language, the things that domain-driven design really emphasizes and applying that to development process and testing. And um, I worked with Richard on some um, engagements for BDD uh, years ago, and we, we found a lot of commonality in terms of the way we were thinking about it and talking about it. And so I was on the book project for a while. And just to be true about this, so I was on the book project for a couple of years and then pulled out and then Richard was really the one that took it across the line. So all credit to him for that and um, appreciate being on the call and being involved in this. Those were some critical two years, I think. The, the book had stalled a bit <laughs> uh, and uh, I think 
Paul really helped it find its current form. We, it was a different book before, and and I think a less important, and less necessary one, and had kind of gotten stuck for that reason. And so Paul helped get it unstuck, and um, I'm much more pleased with the result now. Right, and I think the the shape of the book now really kind of reflects what we were thinking back in that time frame but you've got to get out of jail card paul if anybody doesn't like <laughs> bits of the book they're, they're the bits that richard did right? yeah i can play that card too it's a win-win <laughs> yeah i mean i had to leave that in for paul did want to hurt his feelings <laughs> <laughs> well so i suppose we're going to start with the, the title of the book right so the title of the book's called bdd with cucumber um right, right. Do, do you uh do you have to use cucumber to do BDD? Um, I, I think the title and the question kind of reflect the change in the shape of the book over eight years. It it started out as a cucumber book. I mean, not the cucumber book, because that's yours, but um, a cucumber book uh, where we were writing a lot about how do you use cucumber well on Ruby and Java and .NET and um, much more focused on the tool itself. As we were working on it, we realized that the tool was useful, but not the core thing. The The most important thing was a, a different way of collaborating. Uh, and so the book ended up changing from being a book about Cucumber to being a book about BDD using Cucumber. Uh, certainly includes Cucumber content throughout, especially the whole middle of it when you get to um, kind of formalizing and automating scenarios. Um, but you could do that just as well with another tool, if there were another tool I liked as much for that job. Well, I was just going to add that, you know, I think it's part of why, um, you know, the book can be released now and still be relevant because the, the BDD side of things hasn't changed. And and um, as learning the tool is is uh, important and then the, the process around it though is what we're trying to describe in in the book and the kinds of interactions that would support the tool. So the, 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 the really interesting characteristic of this book that makes it different to many other technical books, in fact I'm, I can't think of another technical book that I've read, um, is that there's this narrative. So um, which is polarizing. <laughs> people love that or hate it. Pol- polarizing in terms of with the, the way people receive the book. They either right. Or yeah. And so we ended up with this narrative at the core of the book because as we were writing about collaboration, uh, I, I think into our head popped the uh, early English teachers in our lives saying, show, don't tell. And uh, talking about people collaborating is kind of strange. And if you've never seen what healthy team collaboration looks like, what really good BDD looks like, you can easily get the wrong idea of uh, silos and throwing things over the wall. And so we said, well, maybe we should actually show what this looks like by telling the story of a team learning to work in this way. And to do that in a way that was, uh, I guess, more authentic and not cheating, we constrained ourselves to writing it as a play so that the dialogue, the actual interactions between the characters had to do the work instead of us commenting on it. That turned out to be quite a bit harder than just writing in prose about what the collaboration looks like, but I, I think it gives a better picture for what good BDD looks like. Yeah, it reminded me of um, Behind Closed Doors, 
for Pragmatic Press, whose book is that? Uh, Joanna. Yeah, there was a bit of that in there. It it's also it's definitely inspired by Eli Goldratt's work, the theory of constraints stuff, and the goal. And there's a little bit of a nod to that with the coach character being named Jonah. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. So, listeners, if you haven't read the goal, you must read the goal. Yeah, that that was really the first book that uh, was a business novel that didn't make me cringe, because so often it feels like the the story is really heavy-handed and just there to teach you a lesson and the goal was actually interesting as a story and so that was the standard we were trying to get to uh, <laughs> don't, i don't know that we reached that to the level that it's incredibly liked, difficult but, i mean uh, I, I, <laughs> it is to, so hard. to come up with try to develop characters that the reader is invested in and and feel realistic and not just um, be there to teach a lesson like Richard said. And so that's really what we were aiming for. Though one of the high points for me, Matt, was in your feedback when <laughs> you you asked, but what happens to them? Yeah, uh, Because we, we kind of left them hanging in, in the middle. And yeah. so, so we went back and, and wrote a, a little more of the story. Really, Paul wrote more of the story to be in that final chapter to put some closure on it. <laughs> so that told me somebody cared. Yeah, I really cared about. I mean, and I think I I, I think it's um, really really effective way to to like you say to show how that stuff works. It's it's so abstract anyway um, compared to you know just sitting and working with a team. Um, and so to be able to do it in a story form, I, I thought was really really effective, really good. Right. We we wrote an extensive backstory for every one of the characters, which didn't come into the book. Uh, and wrote some kind of dialogue from them, described what they have on the walls in their office, just really tried to make them real in our own heads so that the characters could speak and they didn't all sound like us with different names. <laughs> and related to that, I mean, I, I certainly had, with a couple of characters, people I've interacted with in, in the real world in mind, and I, I think Richard did too, in terms of providing somebody that... Oh, when I think of this character, it's kind of this person that I've interacted with in the past that I'm having in mind as well in terms of the kinds of things they would say and how they would say them. And that avoided making them flat kind of caricatures. And that's particularly difficult with um, with the Sam character, um, who is the, the BA who is resistant at first and kind of grows to appreciate his unique role in BDD. It, it would have been so easy to make him just kind of a caricature of the, the person who's not on board and suddenly gets one over. And so we had to work really hard to make Sam real and relatable. But we had people in mind who uh, had done that same journey in the past and that helped. The story allowed us to talk about when things go wrong in a way that you can relate to, you know, or not so much when things go wrong, but like when there's resistance and, and when people don't understand, we can put that into the story and then uh, put explanatory text around it to say, okay, here's what happened in the narrative. You can expect similar things perhaps to happen in your context and here are some ways to think about it. So it allowed us to do that kind of thing in a more natural way. Yeah, every story needs a bit of jeopardy, right? Yeah, and so often the the advocate for BDD, probably the person reading the book, is so close to it that they see the benefits they could have it's obvious to them and they don't really understand how someone else could have a different perspective and so an, another benefit of the the narrative approach and and a team that goes through some struggles as they adopt it is it can build some of that 
empathy and the champion of BDD to recognize other people are seeing this differently and have different concerns and to take those into account as the team changes how they work. Yeah, and I suppose with the Jonah character, who's the the sort of um, enlightened okay. one, you're, you're able to also coach that reader, that evangelist reader, in how to respond to that resistance because, you know, that's what's going on in the story. Now, and just so that people aren't totally scared away by it, we, we bracketed the narrative with explanatory prose and quite a bit of it. The narrative is about a third of the book. Uh, so there, there's quite a bit around it to give it more depth than we could credibly give in a single story. Um, I think the the ideal reader is someone who's a member of a software team that's already using an agile approach in some way, Scrum or Kanban or something. Uh, so they're somewhat familiar with at least trying to deliver small increments of value in, in a short time period. Um, we did find that we needed to back up a little bit before we get into BDD proper and teach a little bit of feature and story splitting because many of the teams we coach weren't beginning with something valuable. So it's, it's very difficult to start with examples from there. Um, but we're not teaching an agile approach. We're assuming that a little bit. We tried to write most of the book so that it's relevant to product people, testers, programmers, kind of the, the three amigos sort of thing. Um, so that it's not intimidating for non-programmers. There's relatively little code in there, like kind of just enough to get started, but there are good resources for going deeper in automation, so we didn't cover that. Um, so tried to reach a, a broader audience with that, but it, it really is members of an Agile team for the most part. Paul, what would you add there? Well, I had an experience earlier this year where I've been working with a team that are doing BDD and the product owners especially were struggling with like, how do we write scenarios? How do we coach the team on how to make smaller increments of value? And it was so good to be able to say, okay, read this book. All this stuff that I've been telling you is is now in the book and know that they were going to be able to, to read it without having to worry so much about the technical aspects of it that someone like a product owner or a BA or, or someone in that kind of role could read the book and relate to it and be able to understand the types of things that I was trying to explain to them. So uh, like Richard said, I see it as a, a more general kind of text that um, somebody with some background in Agile or on a team that's practicing some form of iterative development would be able to pick up and start using, start getting benefit from pretty quickly. That's what we need. Uh, I, I was noticing as I was flicking through the pages that what examples of code there were were in Ruby. Do you, do you see that as something that um, is going to is is going to provide a, a barrier to some some readers, whether technical or not? I think Ruby was the the most easily readable language for someone who doesn't know Ruby, versus Java or C sharp or JavaScript or something. That um, Ruby has less kind of uh, I guess, inside stuff um, where you don't need to know um, as much of the, the syntax or, or ceremony around the language as you would with the others. Um, so that's why we chose that one. We could have written it in any number of languages because we we work in a range of them, but that felt like the best compromise. Right. I, I remember when I came on the project, we actually had examples in multiple languages throughout there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my four goodness. of everything. Yes. So we had to pick something. 
and Ruby. Ruby at the time seemed like the logical choice for that. That if if somebody was non-technical, they would not that would not be a barrier for them. And if somebody was technical, they could look at that and say, okay, well, I can now look up how to do that in Java or C sharp or Scala or whatever, and be able to or JavaScript and be able to do that fairly easily. So it was meant to be more a representative example rather than a prescriptive kind of thing in terms of language choice. And I think there's a, a couple pages of here's the same example, same step definition in a half dozen different languages so you can see how it translates. And I think that would be a good place for someone who's um, not totally comfortable with, with Ruby to go and they can see how it translates from their preferred language. And I think the rest of it pretty much ought to make sense from there. Yeah, we should stress that there's hardly any code in this book. It's not. Yeah, it's really one chapter about step definitions. Um, we're much more focused on the collaboration and ubiquitous language and alignment on a team. But I, find, I think it's really interesting that you found that there was a whole book in that when you didn't realize when you set out that there would be. Right, yeah. I really wrote the book three times. And, and this is smaller than some of the previous ones that were much more focused on automation because there are a lot of um, kind of tricks that you learn after you've done step definitions on many different applications. And we tried to talk about those in, in a kind of non-technical way in the last chapter a little bit. Things like how do you handle time um, or how do you handle having good data in your scenarios and not getting overwhelmed by that. Uh, and there probably is a whole book about those things that we could write, um, but it felt like this one filled a little bit of a gap and was complementary to the other books in the market. I'm particularly interested that you've got a section at the back about features and user stories, which is something that um, has exercised me for a number of years. Yeah, the, the first chapter is... Maybe we've got this big idea. How do we get to even one feature that's worth delivering and break that into good stories? And now you're ready to start talking about concrete examples of the behavior in that story. And that, that was the one that I kept insisting on being there. We wanted to just get right into BDD because it's a BDD book. But we found most of the teams that we coach aren't really ready. You know, if they've got things in their backlog that are components, you know, architectural pieces or tasks, you know, asking what's an example of that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I've, I've been writing about story splitting for 12 years now and somehow accidentally became an expert on that with my story splitting poster and stuff. And so I guess it kind of made sense that that perspective made its way into the book too. Yes, it's almost like bookended because you, got, you talk about it at the beginning and then at the end you talk about the unexpected relationship uh, between yeah. features and yeah, user right. stories, which is a which is something that's very interesting. Yeah, we see a lot of people getting confused about that. Do you want to say a bit about that? About your your perspective on that and on the relationship between a story that you might put into Jira and and a feature file that you'd see in Cucumber and scenarios you'd see in Cucumber. Like how how do they sort of how do they evolve? And you know why can't we just use Jira for our living documentation? Well, some teams try to. I mean, that's that's the reality. Like I've certainly over the last 12 months with teams I've coached, that's been a tension, right, is trying to get them somewhat out of that mindset and and help them see the living documentation aspect of, of Cucumber. And so helping them understand what Cucumber is good at and what Jira is good at. And, and, and so in the book, it 
it's it's really about seeing the user story is, is meant to be a placeholder for a conversation. It's meant to drive the collaboration. And then what ends up in the feature is, is an executable specification of the software and trying to explain how those things are, are similar and different in ways that people would understand. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I remember in years ago, the movie High Fidelity. I don't know if you remember that one. John Cusack as a, a employee in a record store kind of obsessed with vinyl records and typical John Cusack movie of the time. Um, He was always kind of coping with life by rearranging his record collection and his other um, friends would ask him, how'd you organize it this time? And I I remember one line in there that was, um, you know, how'd you organize it? Is it chronological? Is it by genre? What'd you do this time? And he said, autobiographically. Which would make sense to right. no one else, right? It's when did these records come up in my own life? But that's kind of what it's like if you use your backlog as your living documentation for your system, because it's a record of how did the system become the way it is rather than what does it do? And so it's not a great introduction for anybody else who's going to work with or even need to reason about the system. And it's kind of, it's an important lens for the people who did it and because you need to know what am I going to work on next and what did I work on recently and that sort of thing. But the same part of a system could be touched by the team over many different iterations on many different user stories. And so I think we need to make a distinction between the the backlog and stories and things that describe how a system changes over time and the living documentation of what does it do today, which would be your, your cucumber features and scenarios uh, so I encourage teams to treat those as different things, kind of different lenses on the same thing, and not to organize their documentation autobiographically. That's a brilliant image. Because I mean, actually, in reality, um, the historical record of how your project was built is, is rarely all that interesting, right? Um, right. No, knowing how it behaves... Um, you know, including some behavior that was added many years ago by people who are no longer on the team is is incredibly valuable. Um, but sort of knowing that, you know, we built this bit and then we built that bit, other bit, and people disagreed about whether to build this bit before that other bit, it, it, it really fades into insignificance pretty rapidly after you do the work, right? That's, the thing I always think is that user stories are kind of ephemeral. They're, they're just temporary planning objects, and then they disappear exactly. into the code and, and you know, you don't name your classes after your user stories. So why would you name your, your features after them? I was just about to say, I'm sure there's teams that do that. I, I remember <laughs> uh, uh, sort of coming home from a consulting gig and writing a, you know, excitedly writing a blog post about it at one point many, many years ago because somebody showed me their features directory and it was literally... Um, you know, Jira two three seven eight dot feature, Jira two eight nine one dot feature. They were just naming their, and I, I sort of thought that's not going to work for very long if you do that. Well, there are scenarios do two jobs. Um, when you're first working on them, they are doing the job of building alignment around the thing we're working on now, the current story. So, at that moment, that is probably the most natural shape of the thing because that's the mental model that the team is using. We're working on this thing and these are the new behaviors we're adding to or changing in the system. Uh, and what's important at that point is to remember that what's obvious to you now is you're in the middle of it will not be obvious to future you or other people. 
And so getting out of that and saying, what's going to make sense over the long term? What's the, the long term shape of this application? And that's where the scenario should go. You can tag them for the story that you're working on or something so that you can run just that set if you need to. And we see that a lot, but that's a secondary concern. It's not the natural structure. Mm-hmm. I have seen uh, teams that have some kind of regulatory requirement for traceability. And so being able to use tagging to trace back to higher level capability requests, you know, higher level requirements can be helpful to have that sort of dynamic traceability rather than having to do all that manually. But like Richard said, that's that's an actual nice side benefit of the way that Cucumber is structured and designed and not not the typical way that most teams would would work it certainly doesn't drive the way that you approach development and i've discovered even then that that gets nasty pretty quick um, where one story has you create a behavior a certain way and then a few weeks later after you've got feedback from customers you discover it needs to change and so now the scenario that reflected the old story no longer exists in the original form and so what do we tag this thing now uh, and we about the only way we could replay that history is through the version control system and going stepping through that in time, which sounds kind of awful. Well, yeah, but it is at least it is at least a dimension that we have because we keep all of the feature files under version control. So right, and I think versioning your features alongside your production code is critical for that. So you can see at this moment in time how did we intend the system to behave and confirm that it does in fact behave that way. Yeah, so as long as your your sort of architecture aligns with that. So what, one of the things we get asked about lately quite a lot is where you're using like a microservice architecture and um, the features are describing behavior that's actually implemented in multiple repositories, code that's, in, that's spread across multiple repositories. I don't, I don't know if you ever, I don't want to stump you too. I wonder if you have a good answer for that because I, I never really know what to say. <laughs> well, I, I think the... Microservices are a great expression of Conway's law. Uh, you know, Conway's law is the, the idea from Melvin Conway in the 60s about how your systems end up looking like you. If you've got two teams that don't talk very much, you're going to have a formal interface between the two parts of the product they work on. And you know, reverse Conway's law is a thing where you end up looking more and more like the part of your system that you specialize in. And so what I see behind a decision to adopt microservices on a lot of teams is we want to be able to move independently of these other things. We want to have to talk less or we want to have to align less. And so then you bring in something like BDD as a tool for alignment from the customer's perspective. And it's trying to accomplish almost the opposite thing of what the team is trying to accomplish in the architecture. And so we, we find at least on the, the teams that I've coached, there's a tension there of, what do you actually want? Do you want a system that's coherent and valuable for the user? Or do you want a system where you, the teams working on little pieces of the architecture don't have to talk to each other? And I don't think you can have both at the same time. Uh, and what we usually discover, um, because I kind of nudge my clients towards value for customers, uh, whether that's in the back of BDD, I know it's like the people who pay for this uh, and our team costs, you know, one and a half to $2 million a year for a single software team in a country like the U S um, like maybe we should deliver a bunch of value for users in that. And so once you start focusing on that, you realize 
every single increment of value we want to do for a user is horribly expensive because of all of the plumbing we have to build around it to support this microservices architecture. And I think people got into that because it was kind of trendy, not because it actually served the the needs of their business. And, um, I, I think that's going to increasingly become something we have to face in the, the agile and kind of BDD communities. The team I, I've been working with one a set of teams over the last 12 months and they've had those types of challenges where they're doing an actor-based it's not so much microservices but it's in that ballpark in terms of independently deployable units um using actor actor model and they've they've found that applying bdd has has meant that they've had to they've had some success um, with having some scenarios that cross over multiple components, um, kind of like the pragmatic programmer idea of a tracer bullet or, or something like that, where, uh, where there's one scenario or you know, several scenarios that actually invoke multiple services and, and try and express that, that more end-to-end kind of user value that, that Richard is talking about. And, and last time I talked with them, they, they were saying that it's actually caught some pretty significant problems that uh, would have not been caught because they, if, if they hadn't have done that, that testing, that, that sort of multi-component, cross-component testing, they, when they deployed, they, they wouldn't have caught some of the issues that, that they did catch as a result of that. So I... It's a balancing act, right, between the amount of additional effort you have to have to support that kind of architecture and, and the trade-offs between that and the higher team autonomy that you may get um, around that. So it's, it's a tricky thing. It reminds me of the tension as well between sort of solution domain and problem domain, like you know, problem domain being where the customer lives and where the customer value is, and then solution domain being the necessary evil of um, coding and and databases and and whatnot that we that we need to meddle around with in order to solve those business problems. And how you know, microservices is basically a solution domain concern. It's like this is we think this is going to be a more effective way to organize our people um, and organize our code bases. And I think one of the things that I've observed that BDD does and I think this is what you're really, you've both really been talking about is it, it sort of forces more transparency I guess for the business um, of what's going on under the covers because you, you're, you're trying to get those things more aligned trying to use the same words all the way through and um, yeah and even like where you store your feature files whether you can store them in the same repository as the code or whether that's difficult um, and where the responsibilities of the different code bases are you know if i've got a scenario that's describing some behavior where is the code that actually implements that behavior um and it's yeah, yeah it's quite quite an interesting thing for for organizations right that that can maybe be a bit painful when you when you first go through it and i think there's a temptation to pretend that the the service that calls yours is your customer and so yeah i'll just write scenarios from that perspective and like stories that are as this other system i want this thing and of course systems don't want things and the whole point of these stories and scenarios is to develop empathy with the people who actually use the thing that you're building so um i can think of one example of a a team that i was coaching that was legitimately building a service that didn't have 
a user interface. And they started out with that talking about the systems that consume their service uh, because there were several of them and it kind of made sense for it to be a service with multiple consumers. But what they realized pretty quickly was that when they took that perspective, they just built what they were asked for. And quite often it wasn't actually what was necessary. So they started writing their scenarios and their user stories and features and everything from the perspective of the end user, even though they knew we're not building the system all the way out to the end user. And that helped them think more clearly about what they were building in the service and the capabilities that it would enable for the end user facing teams. It's a theme we've come back to again and again in the book, right from the very beginning is how do we get to value sooner with this and, and trying to emphasize that, trying to emphasize the, the radical idea of showing unfinished things um, to, to get feedback, shorter feed, having shorter feedback loops. And then later on in the book talking about, well, how do we interact with legacy systems and applying the same types of principles to, to those as well to be able to get to value sooner for the, the stakeholders, for the customers. And, and using BDD as the way of the lens for thinking about that. And so, Matt, to what you mentioned earlier about the solution versus the problem space, I, I think sometimes we see teams making choices in the solution space that constrain what they can do in the problem space, and they're not doing that intentionally. It's just the the interesting technology or the the trendy architecture choice, and without realizing the trade-offs that you're making there, that you might be lengthening your feedback loops and delaying value by making that choice. And so, is it worth it? And a lot of times it seems like it's not. You talk in the book about uh, you know, the, the, the way teams' behavior will change if they start working in a BDD way. And specifically, you've got a section around how the testers' role changes. Now, Matt and I have consulted numbers of companies uh, over the years. It's quite often the QA manager or the test manager that comes to us in the first place uh, because they want more test automation. But on a number of occasions, it's also been a drive from somewhere on high who would like to maybe get away with fewer testers in the organization. Uh, I wonder how, uh, how you perceive this, whether you've had the same sort of experience and, and how you deal with it uh, in the book. Um, several things in there. Uh, one, one that immediately jumped out at me is that... Uh, a surefire way I've uh, to fail with BDD and Cucumber that I've noticed is to think of it as a QA thing. And so this is... <laughs> 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 sit on that for a minute. Yeah. So anytime the it's been the the QA director who's kind of said we just need to get some automation in there, and there's not the buy-in from the rest of the team, the rest of the organization, uh, it just falls flat. Yeah. So we won't do uh, public BDD classes anymore because we don't want to send back these testers into their organizations like uh, sheep to wolves, uh, totally unprepared to benefit from BDD. I'll, I will only do a BDD workshop with a full team so that all the roles are aligned in there. Uh, so, so that was the first thing that stuck out to me there. Um, I think there's the other question about how the tester role changes, and this is unexpected in a lot of organizations. That testers end up adding value in really different ways when running manual scripted tests basically goes away 
now the tester's role is helping design good scenarios and build quality into the product and asking good questions of the product as it changes with exploratory testing to identify new scenarios. So it's, it's a lot more about how you think about testing and much less about running tests. And that's a big change for a lot of people. And it leads to, in many cases, a, a need to develop tester skills in that space or hire differently because testers have often just been the people who would click through the scripts and they haven't really worked on developing that skill. So I, th- I think it's an exciting development opportunity for testers, uh, but it also can be kind of messy in the middle of that change. That's a much more concise answer than I was expecting. Really good. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I mean, I personally had testers come to me at the end of uh, a class with aligned, you know, but where you've had all three roles in the class. And at the end, the tester comes back after everyone else left and they're in tears because they've been told that they have to learn how to code or they're out. And this is, this is very distressing for, for me. I can only begin to imagine what it's like for them. Right. Right. And actually it's a complete misunderstanding of what, what it is that we're, we're proposing that the organization does. It's just that um, there's this idea that all the tests are going to be automated, so therefore the testers have all got to do automation. Yeah. And in most of the teams we work with, they have an excess supply of programming and insufficient supply of testing in the sense that I'm talking about. And so I would much rather have programmers doing the automation part because they're writing more production code than we can test right now anyway. I'd rather slow them down a little bit. And the automation code is real code. And so the people with expertise in that space should be working on it. Right. And treating that automation code as production code, right? It needs to be maintained. It needs to be refactored. And having the tester role shift from shift from being maybe an adversarial kind of situation with the rest of the team to a collaborative one, right? That's that's really what we're asking for here or what we're seeking is to have a collaborative relationship with the rest of the team instead of, and having the developers, you know, to use theories, constraints, terminology, subordinate to that constraint to be able to maximize the productivity of the whole team. This is a running theme. We, we had uh, Janet Gregory and Lisa Crispin on last week and we were talking about <laughs> exactly the same thing. Sorry, listeners, if we're getting boring, um, but it's, 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 it's really key, isn't it? Like, um, uh, and actually, I was listening to uh, one of our older podcasts with uh, Alex Scheiderbeck um, on my way in this morning. And because um, I just live basically in the cucumber world, all I do is just <laughs> this podcast, Apparently. folks. Um, and uh, yeah, Toki was on that one. And he was, um, he was mentioning a conversation he had with Chris Matz, where Chris likes to talk about testers as quality designers, which I thought was an interesting yes. idea. Right, it's that focus on building the quality in, to use the lean terminology, right, rather than exactly. rather than expecting yeah, right. for it afterwards. Yeah, yeah, and thinking about it as a design activity, like that you you're you're helping the team to think about what quality is going to be before they do the work, rather than um, nitpicking all the mistakes after. That does imply a whole different definition of success, and sometimes there's a need for organizational change around that, like a tester could be really successful and never find a bug. 
What? They help the team build (laughs) the right thing to begin with. So if success for them in the past has been, how many things did I find? Uh, If you're finding a lot of things now, it means you're not collaborating well at the front end to build the right things. It's a whole different way of thinking about the work and what goodness looks like. Yeah. And a whole different way of setting incentives for you, for you managers out there. Yeah. If any, if anyone's getting um, incentivized for bug counts. So I think we're going to run out of time here because um, we, we've only got five minutes left and uh, we, we don't want to use your valuable time and Theo, I know, needs to run out the door. Um, is there anything that we forgot to ask you about the book or anything else in life in general um, <laughs> that you, you, you're dying to be asked about and, 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 and talk about? Well, if, if I may, one thing that I, I like to bring up a lot is that you can experience some of the benefits of this without doing all of it. Like, just start talking about examples instead of abstract acceptance criteria, and things immediately get better on a team. It, concrete examples reveal misalignment and misunderstanding and build alignment and shared purpose like nothing else does. Uh, so I, I encourage a lot of the teams I work with, if, if you're not ready to take on uh, Cucumber and test automation and all the rest of it, just experiment with talking about examples. So product owners, tell stories in terms of examples. Um, programmers, testers, ask about examples. Uh, report bugs you find in terms of concrete examples. Uh, get concrete faster and you begin to get a taste of what BDD can look like because it's it's just beginning from there and saying, now that we're talking about examples, these easily become tests and become living documentation. And let's, let's take that further and see more benefit from it. But it's not all or nothing. Well, I would echo that because, and add to it that the examples also drive the design choices, the modeling that you do. I mean, that's a very domain-driven design kind of idea that the models you create are driven by those examples that the, you know, the, People on the business side, on the problem space side, understand those examples and that's the world they live in every day. And so from a testing side, from a coding side, it's it's diving into that world and examples are the way to get there, right, is to say, okay, so let's, let's get concrete and specific, like Richard said, about what we're actually trying to do here and talk through how this works from a business perspective using real examples and and from there be able to have that drive everything else. Great. Well, I think with that, we'll say thank you very much to Richard Lawrence and Paul Rayner. Yes, and, thank you. Yeah, thank you. and to Sebros, my goodness. <laughs> oh. and, and to Matt Wynn. And to, and, and, to, and to Theo England there, hiding behind <laughs> the, the microphones. Coming from the dungeon. Yeah. So thanks, everyone. Thanks to you out there, listeners. We'll see you next time on, what's this thing called again? The Cucumber Podcast. The Cucumber Podcast. You can subscribe. Oh, yeah, you can. iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And and although I think we may not have made it totally clear, Richard and Paul's book is called BDD with Cucumber. And it's available now? It is. It's on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Yeah. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Thank you.